I sing about love and war I don't really know what I'm saying I've been in love and I've seen a lot of war Hello! My name is Tom Chick and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast where we talk to the people who make the forum what it is about the things that matter to them. Uh, I am here today with uh, Hawkeye Fierce. By the way, uh, Hawkeye, your real name is Ben, so if you don't mind, I'm going to be calling you Ben. Uh, I feel awful talking over Neil Young. <laughs> uh, was that hipster music, by the way? Uh, Neil Young, I think, is the quintessential hipster music, yeah. Yeah, you're kind of right. Do you, do, you, do you follow Neil Young by any chance? Um, I, you know, I don't really follow any music. I'm, I'm very much a musical dilettante. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll find some band or song, and I'll, I'll kind of get obsessed with it. Um, but uh, music has never been a huge part of my okay. you know, lifestyle. Right. Well, Neil Young just released this album with guitar distortion and stuff on it, and, and it has that one really quiet song that I think is just mesmerizing. And it's it's a terrible way to open a podcast because it's so downbeat. Uh and I felt bad about talking over Neil Young, so I already feel like I've I've flubbed the podcast. And now, Ben, you have to save us. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, let's go. Okay, here's how you're going to save us. I am going to out you right now because I want you to know you are not fooling anyone. And here's what I'm talking about. Your name, you go by Hawkeye Fierce on the forum. You said mm-hmm. you, you're, that Hawkeye is an actual real-life nickname that you use. But yeah. your name is Ben Fierce. And I yeah. just want you to know that no one listening to this podcast doesn't know that you are like a superhero named like Captain Angry or something by, <laughs> by night and Ben Fierce by day. You're not fooling anyone with that 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 name right there. Ben Fierce, you're obviously a superhero at night. Am I right? Uh, well, I don't know about a superhero, but my last name definitely has come in handy. It, it definitely carries a certain weight um, that uh, I have found useful at times in my life. I, I think you're Captain Angry. I think you, you live out there in Boston. I think Captain Angry roams the streets of Boston at night and, and beats up punks. Uh, but by day... Oh, you're... no, no, no. I would never beat up punks. I used to be a punk. See, that's exactly what Captain Angry's alter ego would say. So oh. <laughs> you're, you're, just, you're just further confirming our suspicions, Ben. It's not working. <laughs> uh, tell us where you got the name Hawkeye. Are you a MASH fan? Is that what that is? Well, I, I am, but that, that was actually sort of secondary. Um, the, the the character on MASH is, is her name, his name is Benjamin Pierce. Um, and, oh! <laughs> uh, so, you know, when, when I was in a class that had a lot of Bens in it, which, uh, you know, I think my, my high school graduating class had something like six or seven Bens in it, um, we, you know, we all kind of developed nicknames. So Hawkeye, you know, Benjamin Pierce, Benjamin Fierce, great. I'm Hawkeye. So, um, as nicknames go, it, it I've had worse ones, so I'm happy enough with it. So, I stuck it with it. Now, uh, you've been you've been on the forum forever. I've known your your name there forever, but most recently, you helped me with this thing that I'm doing on quarter to three, where I'm getting folks to do game diaries on the front page. Uh, yeah. And you bit the bullet for a fairly niche game. And I, I loved reading you, you. You, it was a niche game, but you don't seem like necessarily a hardcore niche gamer. Mm-hmm. You bit the bullet and you did this A10 Warthog uh, flight sim, which just looked so daunting. Uh, I think a lot of us want to know, uh, after having sort of gone through the tutorials and done a mission, 
is it something you've still played with or did that make you turn tail and run eventually? No, I, I have actually um, still been playing with. Actually, I, I did just post today that I'm going to shelve it for a little bit just because it's still a little buggy. Um, oh, that and, sucks. And, uh, you know, not like uh, really I hit one major show stopping bug that's keeping me from progressing in the campaign I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping that they iron out a few things with that in the next patch. Also, I've got other stuff I want to play. But like, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not putting it away. I, I was really enjoying it. Um, and I'm really glad I, I, I wrote the diary because it, that really kind of gave me the impetus to really commit myself to it and learn the game. Um, and it, it, it is an extremely hardcore game, and I can't recommend it to anyone who's not kind of already into Flight Sims, but I, I did really feel like it was a very rewarding game mm-hmm. and that I got you know kind of an interesting experience out of it, something that I wouldn't have gotten from any other type of game. Um, so what, I'm not, not going to put it away totally, no. What, what are you shelving it in favor of? Because I suspect that, that that it's really that it, it's going to be hard work. The buggy thing does sound kind of discouraging, though. That's a, a game that complex. I feel like I need to trust that it's not broken at some level where I don't know if it's broken or if I'm just not doing something right. Uh, well, I think the, the the core experience of the game, I think, is is in fine shape. The actual simulated A10, I think, is working precisely as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, which doesn't surprise me since it was originally converted from some actual real military simulator that they developed. Mm-hmm. It's the game parts of it that aren't quite there yet. Um, I think I mentioned in my diary how there's this this radio um, channel you go on called JTAC, uh, which is the, the, sort of the forward observer, the guy who tells you what you should be attacking and when and where. And that doesn't quite work right. And air traffic control for the various... Air, you know, the airports you can land at, that doesn't quite work right. And, of course, I had this campaign bug, and that obviously is a little frustrating. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping that that stuff gets ironed out. Um, as I've been kind of browsing the, the forums of the, the company, you know, I, I see some encouraging things that, like, they're not done working on it. They want to add so- something. And there was even a little bit of a rumor of a potential dynamic campaign in the future, which, you know, I'm trying not to get too excited Ooh, about. Oh, yeah, that's it. But, yeah, I um, kind of wish I didn't know that. That's that's very <laughs> tantalizing. Uh, well, and also the thing, too, with a game like that, Eagle Dynamics has such a long history doing these kinds of games. It's not some, you know, some, mm-hmm. some fly-by-night operation that's just going to dump a sim out there and run off. You know, they've... They've got a reputation to maintain, so that's the sort of thing where when I see bugs in that kind of game, I'm like, okay, you know, you, you guys obviously know what's going on. You want to? I'm sure this is something they'll address. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It it definitely has a triple A AAA studio feel. It, it right. doesn't feel like kind of a cobbled together indie game, but it's a complicated game and it's got bugs. So. Well, for folks listening, uh, I would encourage you do not be afraid of a flight sim because Ben does a great job of breaking it down and sort of showing what it's like for a mere mortal to approach a game like this. So his game diaries are up. I encourage folks to, to look them up. Uh, now, Ben, uh, you're not going to dissuade me from talking about your crime fighting in Boston. I want to go back to that. So you live in Boston. Yeah. Uh, when you're not fighting crime as Captain Angry. This uh, is the worst tangent ever. <laughs> well, I just want to talk about your 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 by day alter ego identity as okay. a, a mild mannered uh, uh, teacher manager. You said you used to be a teacher, and you're mm-hmm. now more into the management of teachers. Um, yeah. You used to teach when you taught the LSATs, correct? Yeah, I did uh, did uh, test prep for uh, law school admission. So. Mm-hmm. And uh, now and, I work for a company that, among other things, does test prep, and I, I manage uh, faculty in New England. 
Mm-hmm. Now, uh, going back to when you were uh, helping folks prep for the LSAT, you took the LSAT yourself, right? Yep. Now, does the LSAT, what, what is that? Is that the, the 7 to 9 scale that they grade you on? Is it one No, the five? LSAT has to be special. It has to be different because it just does, and uh, right. that's how it is. Um, the LSAT is scored on a 120 to 180, and 180 is the highest, 120 is the lowest. Now, can we ask you? today on this podcast what did how did you do on your LSATs is that actually I don't know is that like a personal like is that like asking a woman how old she is I don't know the protocol asking somebody no, what they did on their LSATs it's a fine question and I will answer it but I want to tell you what I would always tell my students when they ask because um <laughs> you know I you don't actually want to tell your students because they they're going to react weirdly to it whether um, it's too high or too low or too yeah middling, I can yeah, imagine if right, I tell right. a student hey I got a perfect score <laughs> Well, some students are going to be like, oh, great, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Other students are going to be kind of intimidated by it and not really know that I'm going to be able to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if I tell them, well, I got a, you know, I got a 173, um, then some students are going to be like, well, why aren't I getting taught by the guy who got the 180? <laughs> so it, it was a question I always tried to dodge. Um, but uh, since you're not one of my students, I can go ahead and tell you that I did actually get a perfect score on it. So. Holy cats! No way, Ben. Are you? You are obviously a superhero. That's the. That's something that only like a a guy who was. Uh, let's see. So Captain Angry, I'm guessing you you received a, a near lethal dose of radiation during anger management classes, and that gave you superhuman strength and intelligence, and that's what you used to get a perfect score on the LSAT. Uh, wow, perfect score. Wow. Did you know as you were taking it, I'm getting a perfect score. Well, you, you can you can miss a few questions and still actually get a you know quote unquote perfect score. Uh-huh. Um, so when I was taking it, I, I was pretty sure I missed a couple, um, but I guess the ones I missed weren't you know crucial to my score. So, Ben, were you like a super like 4.0 hardcore book nerd, smart student in school? Very much not. Um, the fact that I tested well was really my saving grace. Um, up until the second half of my high school career, I was I was just a complete slacker um my junior and senior year of high school i did actually buckle down and be like huh this actually kind of matters i should really work hard and then i did pretty well but before that i was just like getting nowhere close to the to the grades and results i should have been now what made that happen when you were a slacker was it uh was it drugs was it D D? was it uh television <laughs> what were you doing uh, instead of it uh-huh. was video games <laughs> aha right that makes sense okay <laughs> Now, uh, I want to ask you, you mentioned, you said uh, when we talked earlier a bit about the LSATs that it's uh, it's a good test and not just for lawyers. Uh, mm. What is the value of taking the, the LSATs? What does that uh, reveal well, about a person? Tell me about the LSATs. To, to clarify, mm. you should never take the LSAT unless you are actually planning on going to law school. There is mm. there is no conceivable reason other than that to take the LSAT. But the LSAT doesn't test any content. You don't need to know math. You don't need to know history or literature or anything like that. You don't need to know anything about the law. Um, all it does is test your critical thinking abilities. Um, so if some random Joe comes off the street and takes the LSAT and they get an average score, then I know that they're likely to um, have a you know an, an, an average decent grasp of you know how logic works and and how to kind of read and extract uh, meaning from unfamiliar text and and how to evaluate arguments and how to make an argument better and how to make an argument worse mm-hmm. uh, and things of that nature. 
So the class itself teaches those skills. Um, so when you know a student walks out of my class, I always feel you know, I always felt pretty good that like even if they don't end up going to the school of their choice, or even if they don't end up going to law school at all, at least I have taught them that you know there is such a thing as a, an argument that's you know well constructed, and there is such a thing as an argument that's just wrong. You know there, that you know it's not a matter of opinion. That guy is just wrong. So um, I, I always liked that about teaching it. Well, now, without getting too much into the, like the nuts and bolts of it, what what exactly, what is the LSAT like? What does an LSAT question look like? What what someone going in to take the test? What are they all word problems? Are they like read this bit of passage and then answer these multiple choice questions about what you just read? Are they essays? Um, there's a little bit of all of that. Okay. Um, there are short word problems. Um, there are uh, reading bits where you have to read a, an article and then answer multiple choice questions on it. Um, there are also logic games, which are, you know, like those, you know, books of games you would find next to the crosswords at the news vendor. <laughs> so you um, say that and I think of the Professor Layton games on the Nintendo DS. <laughs> I don't, that, that might be beneath your, your level of gaming, Ken. But there are these uh, these games where a dude in a stovepipe hat runs around and throws like logic puzzles at you. In the context yeah, of I, I remember seeing those. I never played them, but I definitely saw those. Yeah, I can do those. I can do actually. I can do about twenty percent of those. So I don't know how well that would prepare me for the LSATs, but that's what I think of when you talk about like logic problems. Uh, can you can you give me? This might be too difficult to do like concisely, but can you give me an example of a question that would be on the LSAT? Oh Lord, you want to just put everybody to sleep, don't you? <laughs> so they are they are pretty long and involved. It's not like well, no, I, I can give you a real like short short version. Um, okay. Like, the, one of the shorter word problems, what we call just the logical reasoning questions, um, might give a short argument. Um, uh, and then it would say, you know, what is the assumption that this argument makes? Or how could we weaken this argument? And then you get five multiple choice answers and you pick from them. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. You know what? I, I think they, I, that, that does sound I, I like that. That actually makes me think then of those. Uh, I want to say River Phoenix, but that's not right. Those lawyer games. What the heck are those called? Oh, Phoenix. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Phoenix Wright. Phoenix Wright. Yeah, I have played those. Those were fun. <laughs> Would those help someone in the LSATs? Not even remotely. <laughs> uh, so, so having been around uh, education and and now you're working with teachers, uh, mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about the current situation with teachers in Wisconsin, for instance. Uh, yeah. The, the education system at, at large. You confess to me that you are a dyed-in-the-wool liberal. Yep. Uh, I am as well, by the way, where folks can't see, but we're high fiving each other right now. Um, <laughs> what is your perspective on the education system in the country right now? Uh, it's screwed. Is, it, it's it's screwed. screwed. Really? Yeah. Come it's on. Completely screwed. Um, the 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 I mean, I, I haven't the faintest idea how to fix it, but um, teachers, you know, you can see it in Wisconsin that teachers, which, you know, when you get right down to it, are just middle class workers trying to earn a living. They're not getting rich off of it. They're, they work very, very hard. I don't care what anybody says. Um, and, you know, they, they're getting blamed for the fact that the state's broke. Um, and I, I don't see how we can expect to have a working public education system um, with this kind of attitude in the country. Now, of course, the, the follow-up to that is that the people who are advancing that particular agenda don't really want a public education system in the, in the country. Um, and so I think what we're going to see is is we're going to have uh, a stronger and stronger privatization of education in the country. Um, I don't really want that, even though it would probably benefit me personally via the company I work for. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I, I just I think it's going to have really bad results. We're going to have a very strong class division in education. The poor are going to get nothing. The wealthy are going to get decent education. And um, it's not going to fix anything. Do the unions deserve any sort of uh, I want to say blame? But uh, well, yeah. Are, are the unions to blame for this at all? The teachers unions? Um, you know, I don't really know. Um, my instinct is to say that uh, not really. Um, I think that the 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 real issue is is cultural. That uh, America just you know the American people as a whole just uh, don't really care about education as much. Um, and you know this this filters down from the parents to the students, and the students don't really care about their education. Um, it filters down from politicians to the policies that get set for education. Um, so, you know, do the teachers deserve any blame? Yeah, probably. I'm sure there's something we can we can lay out their feet. But to say that they are solely responsible or even primarily responsible is just uh, a, a dangerous oversimplification in my mind. Sure, sure. So we're screwed at a fundamentally cultural level beyond yep. pol- not just policy. This is a, this is a perspective issue in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, I kind of agree. Yeah. And that's too bad. Uh, I, I remember distinctly going from uh, as a kid, uh, this public school system in California uh, to the public school system in Arkansas, which is just in horrible shape. Uh, and I, I, I vividly recall the transition from fourth grade in California to fifth grade in Arkansas. And it felt like being plunged into the dark ages. Uh, and then I remember coming up through the education system in Arkansas. And I remember Bill Clinton wrestling with it and a lot of times wrestling with the teachers union uh, and sort of coming out of that and thinking, yeah, you know, with guys like that, I, I think the education system is in good hands. We, we can do this. You know, we can fix this. And I just have no sense of that hope I- anymore. I mean, it really does look dire. Uh, now, you, you said you faced a choice at one point. Uh, and maybe I'm misconstruing what you said, but did you face a choice of going to work for the company you're working for now or, or working within the context of public education? Well, I had a, I had a choice between working uh, for the company I'm working for now and, and going to get my master's of education. Um, and I took a look at kind of the state of the economy. I took a look mm-hmm. at the state of the, the job system. And, and uh, keep in mind, Boston actually has a, a very good public school system uh, as these things go. Um, but I decided that I'd rather, you know, take the job guaranteed now than go through a few years of school for a job that may not actually be there when I graduate. Right. So. right. Uh, how long have you been doing what you're doing now? Uh, about four years. You're liking it, okay? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I really do like it. Um, I wouldn't have taken the job otherwise. It, you know, it, it kind of. It kind of gave me that tough decision because, like, you know, I, this is sort of what I've always wanted to do versus this is what I'm doing right now, and I actually really like it. Uh, maybe I should kind of take the the bird in hand and not go after the ones in the bush. So, now you you mentioned you're in management, and part of that involves hiring and firing teachers. Yeah. Uh, what is that like these days? Is there a lot of grim firing going on? Is it hard to find good people to hire? Uh, how? I mean, I guess it's not encouraging from the overall perspective when we talk about the root issues of of the problem with the education system um but um, uh, yeah i get I, I get more candidates than i know what to do with um in terms of hiring uh because that's great news isn't it i mean the fact that, well, that people still want to do it it's good news for me um it's bad <laughs> news for these poor law students that are getting out of law school and suddenly find that there aren't any jobs for them mm-hmm. and they say well what can i do well i went to harvard i'm a smart guy i did well on my lsat all right i'm gonna see if you know if i can teach the lsat for a while 
Um, in terms of firing, I, I actually haven't had to do that. Um, what I, I, oh, I've got a really good kind of solid bench of, of teachers uh, who work for me, and most of them seem to be, you know, kind of ready to stick around. Those that don't, I mean, I, I, I rarely have to fire anyone because, you know, we have a fair amount of turnover. People come to teach for us for a while, and then they move on to other things. Um, but in terms of just saying, you know, you no longer work for us, um, I honestly can't remember the last time I had to do that. That's good because I would hate I would worry that you might blow your cover as Captain Angry if you were put in a situation like that. I don't want that to happen to you, even yeah, though I've outed right. you. <laughs> I, I have no response to that. I'm so aha, <laughs> uh-huh, exactly. So no <laughs> comment. That's just like when Dick Cheney was recently asked if he was a, a a lizard who eats human babies. Or no, no, was it Cheney or Rumsfeld? I think it was Rumsfeld. Was I believe it was by, Rumsfeld. Yeah, it was Louis yeah. C.K. Louis C.K. said, "Are you a lizard who eats human babies? Say Mexican babies?" And he would not answer it. I noticed you had the same response to whether or not. You're Captain Angry. All right. Where are you, Ben? Uh, so uh, how are things out in Boston these days? You're obviously liking it because you don't because uh, you live there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love Boston uh, with uh, only two exceptions. Oh, what, what are the two things that you hate about Boston? The <laughs> weather. OK. Right. On the first day of spring here. It snowed. Uh-huh. Uh, so <laughs> that was no fun. Um, and also, uh, given that my fiance and I are currently looking for a house, I hate the housing market. <laughs> ah, well, yes, yes. There you but go. other than that, I love it. I don't want to move away. Um, this is a great city to live in. Uh, so, you know, and, and this is actually the first city that I've actually really liked living in the urban part of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just there's so much to do. You know, I love it. It's a really young town, um, which is a lot of fun for me now. Maybe in 15 years, I won't maybe find that quite as interesting, but... Because, um, oh, you say young town, and I'm thinking, I don't think that's right. Boston's been around for a while, but you're no, talking yeah, about so the college. Boston itself has been around for a very, very long time. In terms of its demographics, it's right, very Like young. the college vibe. There's so many colleges in, in Boston, I think, that, yeah. Uh, what part, when you say you live in the urban part, where in Boston do you live? I actually live in uh, Brookline, which okay. is, uh, it, it is technically not Boston. It's this funny little neighborhood that is completely surrounded on all sides by Boston, um, <laughs> but was never actually incorporated into the city of Boston. So you guys have like your own trash pickup service or whatever. Yeah. You've got, yeah. We've got our mayor. We've got our own police. We've got, yeah, it's so. Uh, have you seen that movie, The Town? Because that's all about Boston. I haven't. Um, I, I do try to make it a point to watch all Boston-centered movies, but I haven't gotten to that one yet. All right. I hear that Ben Affleck is from Boston. Uh, I have heard that as well, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, what, are you, what are you doing in July? Why don't, why don't you, uh, let's all go on like a, a cra- you got nothing going in July, right? Let's all go on like a crazy road trip to Vegas or something, because you have nothing to do in July. Am I correct? Well, I mentioned my fiance already, of course. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we are actually getting married in July. Um, we actually got the bid from our venue in terms of the overall cost of the wedding um, just last week, and it was considerably higher than we expected. It's um, funny, like hearing you talk about that, Ben, makes me think it's 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 probably just as much of a headache as like shopping for a house. <laughs> yeah, I, I would put them on about the same level. Weddings might be worse. Okay, because <laughs> you don't uh, get to keep the wedding. The wedding is gone after a day. The house, well, at least. I will tell you what I've learned, and, and I hope that this actually is useful information to any uh, quarter to three denizens that may be considering getting married in the future. Mm-hmm. If you're going to plan a wedding, don't tell them you're planning a wedding. Because <laughs> as soon as you mention the word wedding, prices go up 20, 30, 40 percent. How else do you just sell it? You're like, you plan, just tell them you want to plan a party and you'll get much more reasonable rates. <laughs> 
Oh, they know that there's like a wedding surtax that they can yep. stick onto it because the wife. I, yeah, okay, I see how that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, so you actually you have a ring and a date, as Dr. Laura would say. You're, you're locked in for this, right? You're getting. Yep. You're gonna. You're, now, does uh, may I ask your your fiance's first name? Anne. Does Anne know about Captain Angry? Um, I, I'm fairly sure if I mentioned Captain Angry to her, she would have no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> okay, good, because that's gonna be a uh, that's gonna add an, an added dimension to you juggling like your alter ego and your superhero persona. Uh, if I don't know if you read a lot of comic books, I don't, but I've heard of them. That's apparently like when the superhero decides to go ahead and get married. There's a whole other level of dramatic tension to deal with. I just want to let you know. So. Well, Spider Man pulled it off. Okay. Did actually Spider Man marry uh Mary Jane? Ah, you're a comic book nerd. I just outed you. That's worse than outing you as a superhero. I have now outed you as a comic book nerd. I'm not uh, sure you have to be a comic book nerd to know if Spider-Man married Mary Jane. Oh, please. Why would why would a normal... <laughs> did he marry her in the movies? Uh, No. No? So I don't, that, know. That, I don't no. really remember the third one. Actually, you know what? I don't either. I could be on shaky ground here. But no, I'm, I'm pretty sure if you know that detail about Spider-Man, you uh, have outed yourself. Here's another one for you. I actually... Uh, a friend of mine, his wife was wearing a Captain America shirt, and she claimed to like Captain America. I called her out on that. She didn't know the first thing about him. Uh, can you tell me Captain America's actual, like, real-life name? Like, your name is Ben Fierce. Oh, yeah, it's, it's um, Steve something. See, that's as far as I could get. Steve, yeah. And I was thinking, like, Steve Carell, Steve Harvey, Steve. Yeah, I didn't know. Uh, uh, all right, so you're only a partial comic book nerd. Uh, I, I will tell you, actually, Anne is is far more into comics than I am, actually. <laughs> well, wait a minute. What is she? She's really like, no, really. She, she, she we, we've stopped now. We decided not not necessarily on a financial reason, but just on a space in our house reason that we had to stop buying single issues of comics. But she bought every single X-Men comic for a while that came out. Um, she's got stacks of them. So. Now, I find this fascinating. How does she get into to X-Men? Like, where does that come from? I I'm embarrassed to say that I don't actually know. <laughs> I'm, maybe I should find that out about my future bride. <laughs> now, so do you, by proxy, get into X-Men as well? I, You know, I, I, I'll i be honest. I, I do read some comics. I, I haven't really been all that interested in, in superhero comics for a long time mm-hmm. um, because I feel like most of them are really just dreck. Um, I, I've been uh, the comics that I have read over the past couple of years have all been more sort of like indie kind of weird stuff. Like I've really got I really like Atomic Robo, um, which is sort of about a superhero but kind of not. It, it's tough to explain. Um, and uh, another one called The Goon, um, which is a you know really interesting sort of weird mix of crime and horror, um, which is a good one too. How, how do you? Find I, don't, I don't read the superhero ones. Sorry. How do you find the the goon in Atomic Robo? How, like, how do you come across these? Um, I go to my comic shop and I ask the guy behind the counter what's good, and he says, "Here, read Atomic Robo and the Goon." Now, if you weren't already in the comics, what were you doing in the comics shop? Oh, you know what? Research for your activities as Captain Angry. Yeah. Or I was there with my fiance, but either one works. Ah, very good. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so let's see. So you're getting married in July. That's very awesome. Uh, do you guys? Uh, this can I ask this? Do you have like a honeymoon plan? Does that mean you get to go on an awesome vacation in July? Also, yeah, we're going on a cruise. Oh, cool! Have you been on a cruise before? Nope. This will be my first one. I'm excited. And is this like a cruise to like a cool exotic place like Alaska or more of a tropical kind of place? We're going to the Caribbean. 
Very cool. Good. Do you dive by any chance? Do I dive? Yeah, like scuba diving. Oh, no, I've never done that. All right. I'm well. willing to try it out, though. Maybe I will. If you're in the Caribbean, that's uh, that's that's the best time to try it out. So I'll, I'll be honest. I'm a little terrified of, of the ocean. Because you saw Piranha 3D or Jaws or something? Or what, what's no, scary about the ocean? No, I haven't seen Piranha 3D. I, I love Jaws. It's a great movie. But I'm not scared of sharks. I'm just, you know, I, there's something about just being in kind of that vast emptiness that kind of freaks me out. Okay, let me float this by you and see if this scares you. You're floating in the water in the middle of the ocean, and right next to you, a giant ocean liner. Is that terrifying to you? Because that is to me. I don't. I don't know why, but is, does that seem freaky to you? Yeah, I mean, uh, there was this one bit in in um, the Tom Hanks movie Castaway, where he's he's already off the boat and he's said goodbye to his volleyball and spoilers. Um, and this blue whale surfaces next to him, and then immediately after, like a giant like tanker sails next to him, and that scene freaked the hell out of me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> gigantic things near him that could just swat him to death with like without even blinking it just it freaked me freaked me out and and the thing is ben i think that that uh, a crucial part of being freaky about that is the ocean like if i were to imagine myself like floating in space next to a giant spaceship no big deal but there's something weird about half of reality being covered and obscured being under me mm-hmm. and i'm on that that sort of precipice of of you know, the wide open air and then this this unfathomable darkness I can't see and then something huge next to me. What What is it about that? Because that is really freaky. I'm with you 110 percent there. Uh, I think you're I think you're right to say it's it's about it being obscured that, you know, you're you know, half of your body is is, is just missing. It's banished underneath the water and you can't yeah. see what's going on down there. Yeah. If you're on the ground, you know, like where, below you, there's dirt. You know, there's not anything going to be coming up from underneath you. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Well, unless I, I just want to say if. Steer clear of the movie Tremors because it will disabuse you of that notion. <laughs> I love that movie. That's a great movie. <laughs> Have you seen all four of them, Ben? Oh, good. That lot. There are four of them. <laughs> there are four of them. Tremors is an enduring series, I believe. Yes. <laughs> uh, so let's see. So you're uh, you're about to put up the uh, you, you put up the Warthog game in favor of what? What are you transitioning from Warthog into? Well, don't get the idea that I, I play, like, one game at a time. Um, I have gaming ADD. I play, like, 15 different games at once. Once again, um, the viewers can't uh, – the listeners can't see, but me and Ben are high-fiving each other. I'm the same way. I don't understand how people can just, like, fixate on one game. Yeah. So, uh, let's see. Right now, um, kind of on my on my quick click list, I've got um, – I've been playing the new Dawn of War 2 game, mm-hmm. um, Retribution. Mm-hmm. Um which uh, honestly is kind of like I feel like I'm playing it out of obligation. It's good, but it's just really <laughs> not any better than the last one. Right. Um, I, I still have War in the East, which I am poking at occasionally. Have you been? Um, have you? I, I presume you've seen the stuff Bruce has been writing about. Yeah, that. I have been reading Bruce. It's it's good stuff. He I, he he shares a lot of thoughts um, that I have on that game, um, which I, is yeah. necessary. Now I haven't I haven't seen the game yet, but I kind of in a way feel like I don't need to, and I can read Bruce writing about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So okay, so you've got that on your desktop. What else, maybe? Um, let's see. I've got. Um, oh, I've been playing the uh, the this quirky little German RPG called Drakensang, the River of Time. Oh, why do um, I know about that? Yeah, is that is that was, like it's like like it was a twenty bucks on Steam. Apparently, it has a it has kind of a weird history. It's a seat. It's actually a prequel to another game called Just Drakensang that came out a couple of years back. And apparently it was released in Germany first, and then the company just folded, and it went out of business entirely. So I think they just kind of managed to get the English translation out the door, and then just fired everybody and went home. 
Um, so it's on Steam for 20 bucks, and it's it is an absolute steal at that price because it's a totally full featured like 50 hour RPG. It's really deep and great. It kind of captures that same sort of you know classic uh, you know Baldur's Gate type RPG stuff. Uh, so I've been enjoying that one a lot. Is that like uh, a, a like a first person perspective? Is it an overhead view of a party? What what level does third, it play at? It's a it's a like low by the shoulder third person type perspective, but you can see the whole party and the camera can sort of roam, so you're not just like locked on one person. Um, can so you tell if it's it, open ended yet, or does it feel like it shunts you through little areas? You know, it's it's a little bit of a mix of both. Um, you know, the, the areas that you go to are very open, and you can go off and explore them and find side quests. Um, but if you just stick to kind of the main plot, it's very, you know, it's like, all right, so you're going to go from the point A to Dungeon B. After you finish Dungeon B, you take the reward to point C, which sends you to Dungeon D and, you know, stuff like right, that. Right, right. All right, so you got that for for twenty bucks. See, the the thing about for for me isn't so much the twenty bucks; it's the daunting idea of a fifty hour RPG. As a guy with gaming ADD like you, Ben, mm-hmm. uh, I, I I start a game like it's almost like starting to watch The Wire. I don't think I'll ever watch The Wire because that's a huge what eighty hour or whatever commitment. So yeah, I mean, like Dragon's at least The Wire you can take in pieces, and, and I gotta say, Tom, you gotta watch The Wire. It is phenomenal. I, but it's 80 hours. I, I could, so do I watch The Wire or do I play Drakensang through twice? <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's the dilemma there. <laughs> uh, but yes, I know, I know you're, you're right about The Wire. And I do. I do uh, like as soon as I'm going to watch a TV show, it's going to be The Wire. I promise. Uh, well, I mean, you're right that, you know, it, it is daunting. And, I, and I, I will very honestly say I have started far more games than I have finished in my lifetime. Um, that, you know, and, and part of it is just, you know, I start a game, I get really into it, and then, you know, maybe I hit a, a rough spot that I don't feel like continuing to bang my head against, or maybe I get distracted by some other game, and sometimes I come back to it, and sometimes I don't. Um, so, you know, that's just sort of the way I play games. Yep. So you do play, then, epic RPGs. You're not just, like, a, a strategy nerd. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I play just about everything, Um I, I honestly can't think of a genre off the top of my head that I don't I don't occasionally uh, take a whack at. So you also play Japanese dating sims? Um, I don't know. Does Persona Three count? <laughs> you know what? It kind of does. Wow, good call. Good call, Ben. Man, how do you know what that is? Wow, look at you. Persona Comics. Oh, that was one of my favorite games on the. I would actually. I'm going to go ahead right right now and say that was my favorite game on the PS2. Persona Three. Wow. Okay. Better than uh, on the PS2. Gosh, what even games? Better than uh, say one of the Ratchet and Clanks. I was never that into those. Okay, because those are for kids. I didn't say that. I, just, I know. They, <laughs> they just uh, those those are actually if if those are I think the finest platformers you can play. I I know everybody loves Nintendo Mario stuff, and I just don't get the adoration for those. I, I think the Ratchet and Clank series is as good as it gets in terms of uh, platformers. So. If you ever I want think to in visit, that case, I'm, I'm I'm constrained a bit by Anne's taste because Anne also likes the Mario games, um, and you know I have I, I like them fine, but I have a limited tolerance for platform games. So if we're gonna play a platform game, it's gonna be Mario. And after I played Mario, I don't really have room in my you know platform <laughs> closet for Ratchet and Clank. Then right, you get like a buffer overflow in that genre. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> uh, all right, so you also uh, have been playing. Uh, a little obscure war game that we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Now, as a way of leading into that, why, when you are asked, Ben, let's do a podcast, what game would you like to pick? Why would you pick this really old, boring 2D game called Steel Panthers? Uh, now, this is about railroads, right? <laughs> uh, Steel Panthers is a it's a war game about World War II, um, and it's set very low level. You you control individual tanks and individual squads of men. Mm-hmm. Um, and I picked it because um, you know it's it's a game that was actually kind of formative for me, both in terms of the games that I play, and also a little bit in just sort of like the kind of nature of my life and the things that I you know I do for fun. Um, so uh, it came out in '95, um, and I. This was an era when 2D was still king. Like, 3D acceleration wasn't yet here to ruin everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, games were very, very kind of um, muddled. You know, a, you, you didn't have a gamer who was a strategy gamer. You didn't have a gamer who was a, a flight simmer. You just had, are, you're a PC gamer. You play kind of whatever's out there. Um, and uh, at that time, I was a religious reader of PC Gamer. And uh, PC Gamer had this column by a guy named uh, William Trotter, um, and he would always talk about war games. And I would always look at these columns whenever I'd read uh, PC Gamer, and, I, and I'd just be like, oh, man, look at those horrible graphics and the little square counters, and why do I want to get involved in this? Um, and then one day, there's this review of this game called Steel Panthers, and it's got, like, their, it's got like their editor's choice. They gave it, like, a 98, some ridiculously high number, um, which, of course, to my teenage eyes, was like, oh, it's high number. It must be good. Um <laughs> And, you know, so it's, it's Will Trotter. He's reviewing this game and he's showing the pictures and, like, the pictures look like things. I'm like, look, that's a tr- that's a tank. That's a truck. That's a machine gun. I can see what's going on. Um, and the review was just absolutely glowing. And it really, the, the, the point he kind of hammered home was, I don't care what kind of gamer you are, you should play this game. And I think at that point I was also coming off of XCOM, which was sort of, you know, a, a tactical strategy game. And I was thinking, you know, I kind of like that that kind of genre now, I guess. Mm-hmm. So why maybe I'll give this one a shot. Uh, uh, and, and now, it was this, do you remember offhand, is this, this is after uh, Panzer General, though, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, was it after Panzer General? You know what, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about that. Maybe it was It before. was certainly right around the same time. I, I'm not sure um, whether Panzer General and Steel Panthers came out at the same time. Okay. But even but I, in general, I don't think would have interested me that much because at that point I wasn't into abstraction, and Panzer General was a very abstracted game. As good as it was, it you know in, in Steel Panthers, when a tank shot at another tank, you saw the bullet, and if the other tank you know got destroyed, you'd see it crash and you'd see it burn. Um, it didn't have Pan- any of this nonsense where a giant tank is sitting on a graphic of a little city or exactly. a huge airplane is hovering over farms. Like, yeah, it, it was, uh, yeah. If, if something was smoking, it's because it was damaged. And, you know, you can right. see individual tanks. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, I don't remember if it was before or after Panzer General, but... but so, you're, so you're a kid, you pick up Steel Panthers. I presume, okay. obviously, it works for you. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I mean, I, I didn't really realize I was kidding, kind of getting World War II in a box. Because... Ah, right. uh, the thing about Steel Panthers that you don't get in a lot of more modern games is it was it was incredibly generous with its content. This was a game that literally let you play as any nation involved in World War II. And it had accurate you know, uh, details of all of the weapons and the tanks and the vehicles that got used in World War II. And I was, you know, at first I was just sort of getting fun, having fun, you know, clicking on a tank, clicking it over here to move it, and then right-clicking on an enemy to shoot at him. And, you know, great fun, good stuff. Um, but then as I started to play, I got sort of curious. I was like, well, who are these guys? What the hell am I doing here? Why, why are these tanks shooting at these other tanks? What's going on? 
Um, so I kind of wanted to learn more. And, I, you know, I knew war, World War II was kind of a general concept. And I knew that, you know, we were the good guys and the Germans and the Japanese were the bad guys. But I didn't really have a much more sophisticated understanding than that. Um, so, you know, I, I got interested in it and I started to kind of look into it. And, you know, so I started reading some books and I, you know, I think I read some Steve Ambrose stuff at that point. Um, and that was really kind of what sparked my interest, uh, not just in military history, but kind of in history in general. Um, and that was pretty important to my, you know, kind of later development through the rest of, you know, my uh, school career. Now, before Steel Panthers, had you, I, so you obviously, I presume, hadn't played war games. Had you gotten into uh, flight sims at all? Yeah, I had played some flight sims at that point. Um, uh, I, I think I mentioned in my A10 game diary that I played 1942 Pacific Air War. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a, I don't know if you remember the company Microprose. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you say that to someone my age? (laughs) Okay. Um, But Microprose was the king of fluff-filled manuals. And I remember that 1942 Pacific Air War came with this, came with the actual game manual. Here's how you actually play the game. And then it came with this entire separate book that did not contain a single word on how the game actually worked, but just talked about the Pacific Air War. It mm-hmm. talked about the history, it talked about the planes, it talked about where the battles were, who won what, what was the outcome, you know, how did it actually impact the larger war? And uh, the idea of somebody doing that today is ludicrous. Um, but then it was really like, you know, you're not just buying a game, you're buying a little slice of history. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that's when I play a war game or when I play a sim, I think I'm kind of looking to to recapture that that little bit of, of you know, here here's some history in a box. Uh, see how you like it. I have to say I learned more about the Civil War by playing uh, war games than I ever did in school. And I, I blame partly the Arkansas public school system. But uh, it's it's that same phenomenon then. Like mm-hmm. you, you back then you wanted to play any game that came out. So if it's something with hexes and with units with General Longstreet or, or whatever, you play that. And then you're like, wait, what is this? Who are these dudes? You know, why, why do they have this stuff going on? What was the significance of this place? So it sounds like you, that. That was what Steel Panthers really sort of tickled awake for you. Uh, yeah, and it, you know, it's interesting to bring that up because it certainly wasn't the the only game that ever did that for me. Excuse me. Um, you know, I, as as I get older and I play other games, I very often I play a game on some historical topic and I'd be like, oh, I'm interested in this. So, you know, I'd play a Civil War game and then I'd say, oh, I want to know more. And I'd go and I'd watch the Ken Burns Civil War documentary and I'd read Shelby Foote and mm-hmm. um, then I'd play maybe a Napoleon game and be like, all right, let me find some books on Napoleon and find out more about him. And, you know, so, uh, you know, th- there's always been a kind of synergy between the games that I play and the stuff that I read about and, you know, look into. And, and um, you know, Steel Panthers, I think, was kind of the, the point where that really crystallized. So did Steel Pan- Panthers, uh, I- I'm actually struggling to remember, was there any kind of a campaign or storytelling mode or was it more like a sandbox where you just set up series of, of battles? Was there any sort of meta game to it? There was a it, yeah it actually had a couple of different campaign modes. Um, it had some campaigns that were linked battles that were you know pre-created you know historical or or speculative battles um, that were set up a particular way and you were just given your forces. But it also had what it called the long campaign, which was a sort of randomized campaign um, where you picked you know you picked a side you picked you know I'm going to play the Germans or the Soviets or the the British or whatever, um, and you were given a pool of points. And you, you bought a force. Um, and then you fought with that force throughout the whole war. And the battles were randomly generated. Um, but, you know, you fought in the in the proper areas. If you started out as the Germans in 1939, 
you know, for the first couple of battles, you fought the Polish. And then you fought, you know, the French. And then you fought the Russians. Or maybe if you went down to North Africa, you fought the British. And you that would go for the entire war. And your troops would get hurt, and you'd have to get replacements, but they would also get more experience and get better. Um, so, you know, it, it had that kind of dual approach to campaigns, um, which was really interesting. And I think you mentioned before, but were the units... Uh, one tank per unit? Were they in, in small uh, squads or brigades? or uh, what, what was the unit of interaction? Uh, on the, the, uh, the original Steel Panthers was a unit was one vehicle, so a tank or a truck or, mm-hmm. or a half-track or something, or a squad. Um, there were a couple special units, which might be you know just a, a few men. Like You could have a, a, an individual machine gun, which would be like two or three guys, um, or you could have a, a sole sniper. Um, but mostly you were moving around tanks and squads. And how would but it handle? Oh, go ahead. One of the one of the sequels, uh, I think it was the third one, um, actually changed that around. And it's part of why I didn't like that one very much. It changed it so that each unit was like a platoon. So you'd have like two or three tanks or like three squads of men. So the battles were much sort of bigger in scope. But I felt like you kind of lost that sort of personal touch that you were really kind of down there in the mud uh, with your troops. And in, in the original Steel Panthers, was it an action point model? Was it a you go, I go kind of thing? Like each tank had a certain amount of points it could spend before its turn was over, and then the other guy got to move, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, uh, what happened, so you mentioned the third game. What ended up happening over the course of the two sequels to this? So, this, so uh, the, the first one was World War II. Um, mm-hmm. Solely. The second one was it was the same scale. It was really just the same game. Um, but instead of World War Two, they covered modern battles. So it covered from like, you know, 1950 to 1999. Um, and, you know, so it, instead of me driving around, uh, you know, Sherman tanks or Stuart tanks, you'd have, you know, M1 Abrams tanks and you had attack helicopters. And, um, you know, so I, I, I was never really that interested in land modern combat. So I didn't play that one that much. Um, and then, as I mentioned, the third one kind of upped the scale, and that one didn't interest me that much either. So. Right. Now, what did they do with things like they would traditionally be off-map assets, like artillery and air power? Was that even part of the first Steel Panthers? Yeah, it was. Um, and, uh, it, you know, the I, I should mention Steel Panthers was desi- designed by a guy named Gary Grigsby, who's a pretty, you know, if you're a war gamer, you've heard of him. Um, and he's the guy who, who was one of the you know key guys in the new War, war in the East game. And he has pretty much always been known for just incredibly arcane, difficult to understand UIs. And Steel Panthers was, you know, for the time, I think if we look back at it now, we'd be like, oh, man, this is so fiddly and just ridiculous. But for the time, it was really very easy to play. For the most part, you clicked on a unit, you clicked on where you wanted to go or who you wanted it to shoot. For off-map stuff like artillery or airplanes, you did have to, you know, click into a menu and then kind of click where you wanted it to go. But it was still pretty intuitive. You know, I click the off-map artillery button, I clicked on my target, and I clicked on the shoot button. And that was it. Um, And so, you know, it it did have that, and it was pretty pretty easy to use. Now, I I don't know if you you said you didn't play Steel Panthers 2, in which it uh, it transitioned to the modern era. But it, it seems to me that, that the demands placed on an engine by World War II combat are completely different than what is required with modern combat, where tanks aren't necessarily firing shells at each other, but anti-tank missiles rule the battlefield, and, and helicopters shred everything. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you know how well that was modeled? Did that? I, well, I think that I think that's the exact problem that okay. 
that cropped up with that game is that, you know, they took an engine that was created for World War II and kind of tried to kind of shoehorn modern combat into it. And, you know, I don't know that it worked that badly, but it probably was not as good as something that, you know, built from the ground up for modern combat. Which is where I'm now, Ben, going to play the uh, the card on you that I have for, I, th- I guess I'm like 10 years older than you, because I remember my entry into... I guess computer games at large, and certainly into war games, was a Gary Grigsby game from 10 years earlier called Mech Brigade. And Mech Brigade, I believe it wasn't a one, like each unit wasn't one vehicle. I think they were they were small groups of vehicles. Uh, it wasn't quite operational level. It was still very tactical. But Mech Brigade was built around modern uh, land warfare with anti-tank missiles, with helicopters, uh I remember playing Mech Brigade, uh, and this was still the Cold War, you know, 1985, I guess, is when this came out, 10 years before. So this was still the Cold War, and I remember seeing things like like BMP-2s and BRDMs and thinking, you know, I should know what these are because these could be rolling into, not Arkansas at any moment, but, you know, these could be rolling into Berlin at any moment. You know, this could be cutting-edge hardware that you would hear about on the news. I want to know what a BMP-2 is. Uh, and and so what what I learned about armored combat was, was very post World War II. This stuff about if you can see a tank, it's dead. Uh, and that was Gary Grigsby making from the ground up a modern armored warfare war game. Uh, so yeah, so uh, it sounds like the Steel Panthers two engine was kind of an ill fit for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Steel Panthers three, you didn't you didn't play that either. But the series didn't die there, right? Uh, nope. There's a, it's gotten a bit of a second wind, you might say. What has happened to Steel Panthers since Steel Panthers 3? Yeah, it's got this sort of weird um, divergent evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there are two, there are actually three freeware Steel Panthers out there. So Matrix Game, which, which is that big um, war game company, uh, has uh, a version that they call Steel Panthers World at War. Um, and that is a strictly... Um, World War II Steel Panthers game. I believe they based it off the engine for the third game, mm-hmm. but the scale is again just one tank, one squad, um, rather than you know groups. Um, it's you know still got that same sort of expansiveness that the original had. You can play any nation. Um, they had a freeware version. I think they also have a pay version where you get some added bells and whistles. But I honestly have never met a single person who actually paid for the game. Um, <laughs> And then this other group of just sort of independent game hackers that call themselves the Camo Group um, worked on two freeware versions. They worked on a World War II version, and they worked on a modern combat version. And I believe they were actually going off of the second game as their base for, for building this new game. Um, and so they've got, you know, Steel Panthers World War II, and they've got Steel Panthers, you know, Modern Warfare or whatever they call it. Um, so those are out there, and I think those are now distributed by Shrapnel Games, which is like the other major war game publisher these days. Now, have you um, looked at either of these? Yeah, I've played them. I've played them all. What? How do they? How do they hold up? Like, what? What is it like playing a Steel Panthers game in, in the modern world? Well, you kind of have to put your your kind of graphics fixation in your back pocket and kind of ignore it because um, they don't look good. Uh, and you know, even if you compare them to like you know, combat mission beyond Overlord, which is not a pretty ga- game by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's still just, you know, the, the sprites are busy and dirty and, and it's ugly and it's really low resolution and it doesn't look good. But it plays really well. 
Um, they, you know, they, the, my biggest complaint about all of them, um, and I like some of them better than the others, is that they went too big. The original Steel Panthers, I always felt like the battles were relatively small and contained and manageable. You were controlling, you know, maybe uh, maybe a company or two companies worth of troops, uh, maybe a battalion in a really, really big combat. Um, and, you know, so at any given time you had, you know, maybe 40 or 50 units that you had to move around at the largest. In these new freeware games, they the battles have just gotten gigantic. And you've got some where you've got hundreds of units to move. And I just don't have the patience for that. Um, so, you know, I do like them when I play kind of the smaller battles, but, you know, the, the focus on the kind of larger, bigger, better stuff kind of kind of left me behind a little. Is that partly more people who aren't just sort of dilettantes and, and only play war games? Right. And is that partly an interface issue, you think? Like, are, is it tough to are there any modern conveniences in terms of managing your units like lists or, or overview maps and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of kind of hints and winks at that sort of thing, but uh, it is a big interface issue, that it is really just hard to manage that many units. Um, and, you know, that they, they've done a lot of updating, but at the end, they're still dealing with the Gary Grigsby game. And Steel Panthers may have been as user-friendly as game, but that is by no means high praise. So. Right. Now, now, you mentioned talking about uh, Steel Panthers as a sort of a, before we recorded, you said it was sort of like a gateway... Yeah. war game mm-hmm. uh is this something that uh you you played more war games beyond steel panthers i presume yeah absolutely um i mean i would say that steel panthers uh, i i wasn't I'm, I'm more into war games now probably than i was you know immediately post steel panthers and in the few years but at least got me interested mm-hmm. it got me thinking hey you know there's actually something to this that you know it's kind of interesting to kind of replay historical conflict um, so I think one of the, the the ones I picked up almost immediately afterwards was a, a game called Age of Rifles, um, which was a um, uh, by a guy named Norm Coger, um, and it was a again it's just sort of like this expansive you know content thick game uh, which let you play pretty much any fight in the 1800s. Uh, but I played mostly the Civil War battles there, um, which I I always loved uh, playing those, and that's sort of how you know I mentioned I got into the Civil War via that. Um, and then I was like, hey, I really like this guy, th- this this game by this guy, Norm Coger. And a few years later, he put out another one called The Operational Art of War. Um, and I was like, well, you know, I don't really know much about this. This isn't something I'm really uh, familiar with. But, hey, this guy made a game I really liked. I'm going to try the next game and see if I like that one. And that one was a total shift because where Age of Rifles and Steel Panthers kind of depicted the actual units, like, you know, Steel Panthers had the tank. Age of Rifles, you were moving, you know, the regiment or the brigade around and you could see them kind of moving around. Um, Operational Art of War was very abstracted. It was it was you know really board gaming. You had you had rectangular counters on a hex grid, and that was a real shift for me because I'd never really played a game like that before. Um, but I, you know because I was sort of primed by these other games to say hey you know I'm gonna give it a shot. I gave it a shot and I liked it, and that's sort of where I really said okay I like war games. I'm into them now. So. What, what would you think is the modern counterpart? And I'm thinking specifically of a game here, and I'm curious if this occurs to you as well. Is the modern counterpart to the original Steel Panthers? Um, and, and by well, modern, I mean as modern as as yeah. I mean, like my more. first instinct is to say uh, combat mission, right? Uh, right. Because they're you know they're they're at the same scale. You know they're they're dealing with individual vehicles or individual squads. Um, but the games are so very different. They're really kind of you, you compare them and they're just. They're, they're, you know, they, they could not have made different choices 
about, and, you know, more different choices about how to represent, you know, tactical combat in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steel Panthers is, you know, I go, then my opponent goes. Combat mission, you know, we, we put in our orders and everybody goes at once. Steel Panthers is top-down, 2D, very kind of high-level, weird, abstraction, abstracted view of the battlefield. Combat mission, 3D. If you can see the tank, then they can see you. You can see line of sight really easily. Um, you know, stuff like that. Just It, it just, it, I like them both. But I don't feel like one necessarily is better or supplants the other because of just how different they are. Let me throw this at you and see if this occurs to you as well. But the problem that I have after combat mission and the, and the fellow who made it, Charles Moylan, I think he he broke a lot of traditional war games for me in that when I play a game with action points, if it's something silly like XCOM, I'm fine with that or some some uh, SRPG like uh you know, we have a tactics ogre game diary on, on quarter to three now, something like that. Action points, yeah, fine. But if I see like a game that's trying to realistically show me a specific tank uh, and, and that cares about which way it's facing, I feel like in a post-combat mission world, there's no room for action points. Uh, so that that's a real obstacle for, for me. But, but you didn't find that was the case for, for you personally revisiting Steel Panthers? Um. I- I think it, what it was is that I was more aware of the abstractions that they were using, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so I was able to kind of look at the look at it more as a game and less as a kind of simulation. Sure. Um, and you know, and, and that's sort of something that you know really hardcore war gamers are going to get up and up in arms about about you know is it a game or is it a sim? Um, and I've always leaned more on I want it to be more of a game. Um, you know, I, I I like the 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 history. I want to feel like I'm I'm kind of taking a, a a dip into the the pool of military combat, but I, I don't really want to get bogged down in the minutia that a, a real company commander would have to deal with, because mm-hmm. I don't really like filling out supply requisition reports. <laughs> now, were there rules for things like a command radius, or because one of the things I remember about Mech Brigade, and sorry to keep mm-hmm. going back to this, but this this was such oh, it right. made such an impression on me as a, as a kid. The same impression, because I would have been the same age you were when you discovered Steel Panthers. But one of the things I remembered about Mech Brigade were these crazy ideas about, uh, like, command radius and whether or not a tank had a radio in it, you know, and, and the command, how far the command unit was from his uh, his uh, his subordinate units and that determining what or whether I could do anything with those units. Is there any sort of nod to that in Steel Panthers? There is um, a, a, a unit that was outside of the range of its its commanding unit. You could still use it. You could still fight with it. But if it if it retreated or if it panicked and started to run away, it would be harder to rally that unit and get it back in the fight. Ah, right. um, and and t- some tanks had radios, some didn't. Um, I know that uh, in at least in the more recent remakes, uh, they have options for really realistic command and control. Um, I always play with those off because again, I don't care. That's not the fun part for me. So. <laughs> Well, that's another thing, too, that occurs to me about the the distinction between Steel Panthers and something like Combat Mission. Combat Mission is really an exercise in letting go. You know, you talk about the distinction between simulation and a game. Combat Mission, you're not going to be able to control certain things. Certain things are out of your hands. You you know, in Steel Panthers, you tell the tank what hex to go to and who to shoot at. And you don't Mm -hmm. always have that luxury in a game like Combat Mission where things are happening when you cannot touch them. You know, there's definitely this sense of you're you're a spectator at times and things are going to go wrong and you can't fix them. And you just have to learn to deal with that in combat mission Uh, Whereas Steel Panthers is more like a board game model, you know, moving moving chits on a hex kind of. Yeah. 
the combat mission model made it much harder to cheat too. <laughs> now let's. So you mentioned. Go ahead. Sorry. As a, as a kid, when I played Steel Panthers, I would abuse the save load function mercilessly. <laughs> I, I, I'd get a tank, and I'd put him in view of an enemy tank, and I'd save my game. And I'd take the shot. And if it blew up the tank, great. And if it didn't, I'd reload the game. Oh, Ben, you're a terrible gamer. <laughs> oh, I don't do that. <laughs> but I was, you know, I, was a, I was a kid at the time. I thought it was fun. You know, I just wanted, you know, I wanted to have the perfect battle, and I didn't want to lose any of my units. So. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like God mode before any such thing exists. <laughs> now, have you ever? Is there any occasion to to revisit Steel Panthers as a multiplayer game? Do you know? I have actually never played it multiplayer. Um, I Does know it support it has, that though. I, I believe it has a play by email feature. I honestly don't know if it's got like a kind of like a, I'm pretty sure it's got like a hop seat mode too. Right. Um, but I, you know, I like I said, I've just never played a multiplayer. I've never really um, gotten into it that way i'm I'm fairly confident it must have a multiplayer because i can't imagine it would have sustained the community that it has without a relatively robust multiplayer suite but it's never been much of interest can you speak at all to my own pet issue and that's ai like is it is it a challenging ai does it just roll everything at you on mass uh is there any sense of tactics going on in in the in the enemy side when it's controlled by the ai i always felt that the ai was pretty solid um my my biggest complaint with the modern remakes isn't that the AI that actually plays is bad, is that the a, it was that the AI that bought units was ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> if, if I set up a, a battle and I was like, all right, I'm gonna play I don't know the Soviets, um, you know, and I'm gonna play it in the early war. I'm gonna have, have the Soviets invading Finland, um, and you know I'm gonna take a handful of tanks and a couple of platoons of you know I don't know assault engineers or something like that. Um, and then it, I hand it over to the AI and, and, you know, I say, okay, I have this many points. So the AI has to buy that many points of units. And so instead of buying kind of a mixed capable force, it would buy like 500 squads of like <laughs> conscripts and, you know, like has no actual chance of winning the battle, but will just sit there and bog me down for like 500 turns as I try to just slog my way through all that. So the AI would use those units very well. But it just didn't make for a very interesting battle because now I'm fighting, you know, a ridiculous ahistorical force that doesn't make any sense. That's awesome. The AI sucks at shopping. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Now, uh, so so having been a war gamer uh, and and starting with Steel Panthers and then following through to some of Norm Koger's stuff, uh, I presume you've been active in like war game communities, like online, talking to other war gamers. Uh, sort of being around that that grognard level of, mm-hmm. of discussion. Um, you mentioned to me earlier something that that I think is really interesting, and I, I want to touch on here uh, about the politics of like war gamers and simmers. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've never given this a lot of thought, but what you said really struck me. Uh, what what's been your experience as far as like how war gamers and flight simmers and guys who are into this kind of military hardware stuff? Uh, who, who share this fascination that I think you and I have. Uh, what's your sense of how they relate that to the real world and politics? My my impression is that war gamers as a whole, there are mm-hmm. certainly exceptions, and I wouldn't necessarily uh, assume anybody about an individual war gamer, um, but as a whole, they really do seem to lean conservative. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I find more really crazy fanatical right-wing people among war gamers than I do um, just about anywhere else. Um, like, you know, there, there's always, whenever you get like, you know, a group of war gamers together, there's always that dude who's just a little bit too into the German SS. 
And, you know, it, it, it's just a weird... I, I honestly don't know what the source of it is, because I don't think that, you know, there's anything particularly conservative about having an interest right. in military history. Um, and yet, you know, there's there's definitely... I, I, I really... I, 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 I think I can say it with confidence, because I, I defy you to find me a war gamer who doesn't, you know, mostly agree with this. Now, some of them may think it's a good thing, some of them may think it's a bad thing, but I think everybody's pretty much on the same page that war gamers are, by and large, more conservative than the average population. Well, there's there's two things I think you're touching on that I think are important to distinguish, and I, I don't I think you're aware of this, but I just want to clarify. Mm-hmm. There there's there's the sense of being conservative, a serious mm-hmm. right wing, and and my friend Bruce Garrick, he's a perfect example of that. He is he's really into World War II, he's really into history, he's so into politics, and Bruce Garrick is one of the most conservative, unabashed neocons. I've ever met. And I love the guy, but politically, he's just so far out there. Now, that's one issue. The other issue is this weird fetishistic uh, regard for certain hardware that often bleeds over into an affection for for the Nazis. So, like Bruce doesn't have any of that. Bruce is well aware of the, the perversity of what the Nazi party was and the enormity of what they did. But the, you're right. There is this faction of people who I think are into to war games and military history. I don't think it's specifically war games. I think it's more military history, and that manifests itself partly as an interest in war games, mm-hmm. who do have this fetishistic regard for, like you said, the SS or, or whatnot. And I think those are two different things. So those fetishistic weirdos, you know, screw them. And yeah, I've seen them. Those guys are weird. But this this idea that a lot of war gamers are more conservative, maybe hawkish, um, neocons, for instance, uh, I, I'm I'm curious about that. Like, is that something you see in discussion forums or amongst friends of yours? Or um, I, I see it in discussion forums a lot. Um, one of you know, I I don't really tend to post a lot in wargaming forums. Um, for for the reason that you know I'm I'm not quite as hardcore a wargamer as a lot of the people who do post there. So I just you know I just kind of lurk and you know I see what I can see. Um, but one of the big uh, a big war game um, forums out there is a place called Game Squad, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they've got really good forums on on uh, you know Steel Panthers and and on you know some board war games like Squad Leader and stuff like that. Um, but I, I poked my head into their political section and it scared me. It was really weird uh, to be there, especially after coming from a place like Quarter Three, which has a political you know section of the forum which unabashedly leans left. Um, to go to someplace like that and just see the sort of things that were being thrown around, I was like, I don't, eh, I don't know about that. I don't know that I have a lot of uh, um, a lot of wargamer friends, kind of, you know, in the real world uh, that lean conservative. Um, in fact, one of the guys that I, I play board games with, um, he's he's a big miniatures gamer, mm-hmm. and he plays something called Flames of War. Um, and uh, Flames of War kind of divvies up armies based on you know, something called their morale level and their training level. And he said, you know, hey, I wanted I wanted to find a force that had a morale level of, you know, the highest and the training level of the highest. But I decided I couldn't play that force because I found out that the only force that actually met that criteria was the SS. Uh, and he, <laughs> I was going to like, I, I don't want to play that. Uh, <laughs> but you know, that actually that actually brings up something interesting. You know, like it's not just the war gamers themselves. Um, a lot of times the games themselves uh, embody these sort of conservative views. You know, if, ah. if you argue that any game is kind of making a statement about the history that it's trying to represent, 
um, you're hard pressed to find games that represent the German army as anything other than incredibly elite, well-trained forces, which may have been true about you know a fair amount of the German army, but it wasn't true 100% of the time at all places and all times. Um, and you know there is that sort of ingrained feeling in a lot of games that you know they may be a little more sympathetic to one side or the other. I, I think you're right. Like it is if you're if you're going to translate something like that into numbers, you know, the efficiency of the German army, you know, the Wehrmacht versus the SS, uh, you, you do in a way kind of have to make s- objective statements about what's better, what's worse. Uh, and there's definitely some perspective there. Uh, and by the way, I just want to back you up uh, as, as a longtime simmer. You know, I've been into flight sims, naval sims for a long time when that was still a viable genre. I was like a go-to guy for several publications for whom I wrote you know, they would get in a sim and they'd be like, oh, we don't play these. Get, get Tom Chick to do it. So I was very active in those communities. And it always struck me what you're saying, Ben, as, as being true about this weird conservative bent in that community, specifically in contrast to, to wider gaming communities at large. Uh, and I don't know if that's a function of of age. You know, there's this old adage that the older you get, the more conservative you get. You know, what is it if you're if you're under 25 and you're not liberal, you don't have a heart. If you're over 25 and you're not conservative, you don't have a brain. You know, there's those kinds of things. So I don't know if maybe war gamers and flight simmers skew older and therefore more conservative. Uh, I don't know if there's this hawkish bent. Um, so, so yeah, but I definitely see that w- with Sims and, and wonder about that. Uh, quarter to three, very liberal uh, political community, but you go to some of these naval sim forums and it's the same thing. You know, this this real conservative political bent and not just in their off topic discussions, but a lot of times in their on topic discussions, uh, it just sort of bleeds through and is almost a, a given. Like it's almost assumed amongst the people who are discussing those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really weird. I don't understand that. Uh, so as as a uh, I'm also a little confused lately. Uh, because of traditionally conservative hawkish folks, very pro-war, but weird things have happened, not just post, well, yeah, mainly post 9-11, about perspectives towards politics and military intervention. Um, now, you're, you're a real liberal guy, you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you watch what happens in, say, uh, Libya? Uh, you know, in Libya right now, there's a big deal with what does a no-fly zone do to ground combat you you know that's currently a politically relevant topic now as a war gamer doesn't that suck you in a little bit as a a political issue as well and a war gamer yeah i mean i'm certainly interested in what's going on in libya um you know the the the, i think the thing that we're finding out um in all the sort of modern conflicts we've been involved in in the past decade is that so many of our assumptions on on how our technology is going to interact with the battlefield and how you know our air power or our ground power or our sea power are going to affect our ability to 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 you know to to impose our will in in armed conflict. So many of our assumptions about all that are wrong, um, and and that you know we, we, things are not necessarily less effective that we than we thought they were, but they may not be effective in the same ways that we thought they were. To take the example of air power, um, you know, air power is great if you, uh, in terms of ground combat, if you want to blow up tanks and you want to, you know, interdict supply lines and you want to do things. 
air power isn't really good at, at taking out, you know, entrenched, dispersed infantry that's like buried in a city. Um, and when you're dealing with, uh, you know, a, a kind of revolution and, and the sort of really kind of guerrilla force against a, a kind of, you know, more uh, professional military, um, you're going to see kind of weird interactions that come out of that. Now, do you think that's modern, though, or isn't that wasn't that the big lesson of Vietnam, wouldn't you say? Oh, uh, well, yeah, I guess I guess Vietnam does go back to Vietnam. Um, well, I guess then what's surprising is how little we seem to have learned from. This oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so as just a, a quick tangent, as a liberal, uh, how, how do you feel about uh, the way the no fly zone efforts are going in, in Libya and the U.S. participation? Well, you know, I'm I. Honestly, it, it, it kind of makes me annoyed, and and this is going to sound a little petty, but um, right. you know it, when when the Iraq War was being justified, mm-hmm. you know one of the justifications w- that was being used was that you know we have an oppressed populace here, and a and a horrible dictator, and those people are yearning to be free, and we should go in and, and help them to be free, and you know be that as it may, whether or not that was really true, you know that was the argument that being put forth. Here in Libya, we have a populace that is unequivocally yearning to be free. They're fighting for it. They're dying for it. And we've got a dictator who is unequivocally evil, horrible person, bombed protesters, bad guy. And yet now there's this hemming and hawing. Oh, well, you know, we don't necessarily want to get ourselves involved in an internal conflict. And, and you know, I, I honestly, I'm not sure which way I want to go. But it always frustrates me to see, you know, the kind of lie put to those sorts of, of arguments that have been made in the past. Well, I, I, you know, I think that we should remove Qaddafi or we should do whatever we can to get him out of there. Um, but I also think that we need to be very cognizant of, of the ways in which we do that, because there's probably a right way to do it. and There's probably a wrong way to do it. Um, and if we do the wrong way, we could end up with another situation very much like Iraq. And if we do it the right way, it could be nice and clean and, and easy. Um, and I, I will freely admit I am not qualified to know what way would be the right way here. I, I can't help but watch this unfold and think that we are doing it the right way. I mean, I, I'm so I, I'm, I'm pretty encouraged about I, I think a lot of people would hate whatever Obama is doing, no matter how he does it, period. Yeah. And I, I suspect there's a lot of that going on. But I watch what's unfolding in Libya and I am I'm so pleased with the way we're doing it especially as a contrast to the way we were doing things with uh, the Bush administration. Uh, so just I saw as, an interesting as, thing on, uh, on Andrew Sullivan's blog. Um, he, was he hates it. Apparently he hates what we're doing in Libya. Doesn't he? My friend, I haven't, I haven't read daily dish much lately because he doesn't, he's not always there, but isn't well, yeah, he, he, hates he hated Iraq too. I mean, he, he, right, you know, right. I, I can't stand he, that guy's hypocrisy life. though. Go but ahead. His, with the, with the conservative party was really like, this is ridiculous. Why are we spending money in Iraq and Afghanistan? You know, that was where he, he sort of that, that was kind of his, his come to Jesus moment where he said, oh, wait a second. The party I'm associated with is actually insane and uh, I don't want to be a part of them anymore. Um, but so he hates Libya, but he he, he or well, he hates what we're doing in Libya. Um, but he put this quote from somebody else just saying, like, a lot of people are arguing that, like, we don't have an exit strategy. Why are we going into this? You know, as when they're criticizing Obama. And the quote was sort of like, well, when have we ever had an exit strategy? We never go into a war or a conflict with. <laughs> I mean, why? Why is that suddenly a precondition that we need? Um, so you know, I I think I, I think I'd probably lean uh, to agree with you that you know it's it's mostly being done right, um, 
And, um, you know, really, in the end, only time will tell. But uh, for the time being, it seems like it's being done okay. Uh, to me, uh, to me, Ben, exit strategy is almost a dog whistle uh, phrase. Uh, like, like we have a goal, and I'm sure that the Obama administration is very clear on why we're doing what we're doing. It's just whenever you talk about an exit strategy, that's that's sort of assuming you're making predictions about how it's going to turn out. So I, I think once you roll out the term exit strategy, it's only to criticize a policy. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm calling bull on that, and I have no use for freaking Andrew S- uh, Sullivan. Uh, there's there's a there's a uh, man, here's a weird segue. Uh, there's a game called Test Drive Unlimited 2, which I've been playing, <laughs> which uh, it has it's the most awful storytelling drivel. Like you, you race against specific racers and you're supposed to know their personalities and whatnot. So when you're driving a race, it has the name of the driver over the car. For whatever reason, one of the drivers is named Andrew Sullivan. Anytime I see that that effer, I'm like bouncing him off the road. I'm like, screw you, Andrew Sullivan. So I love that in, in Test Drive Unlimited too. Is you can you can you can drum Andrew Sullivan off the road. You can race dirty against him, and he sucks by the way too. I'm constantly beating Andrew Sullivan in uh, Test Drive Unlimited too. Uh, actually, to, to continue from that segue, you've you've actually reminded me there is a genre I have almost no experience with. Driving, driving game. Yeah, right. I, I I played. I mean, unless you count like the GTA type open world game, which I don't particularly, right. but you know I've never really played the uh, the driving sim. Uh, I wonder how conservative driving fanatics are. <laughs> that old gearhead thing. <laughs> Does that apply to them? And do they are they also like because of the situation with Detroit? Are they pro labor or anti labor? I don't I don't know. Crazy driving sim games. Well, uh, all right. So uh, yeah, that, that was a terrible segue, but I love talking about that stuff uh, and. Certainly, the the situation in Libya is really fascinating. Have you heard of a game? Uh, do you do board games? Yeah, yeah. Do you know of a, a board game called uh, Labyrinth: War on Terror? I have. I want to get uh, a chance to play it because it's it's sort of a pseudo sequel to another game that I like a lot called Twilight Struggle. Twilight um, Struggle is, is yeah. Ex- ex- you would you would love Labyrinth: War on Terror. Then have you actually gotten to play Twilight Struggle? Yeah, I, I played it a couple times. So. Did, how how did you do? Um, I played uh, as the, the the very first time I played it, um, I was playing with a friend. We were both kind of learning it and we played it completely wrong. Um, <laughs> and we figured out we were playing it completely wrong because he was playing the U.S. and um, was just stomping all over me in the first period of the, of the war, which, as it turns out, um, is is very much not how the game is balanced. Like the game is really balanced so that the Soviets ha- have a better chance of winning overall, but particularly in the early game, they're really just going to be causing problems all over the globe. Mm-hmm. So the next time we played, um, I played as the U.S. and we played with the right rules this time, um, and we got to the mid-war, and I'd been keeping it pretty even, um, and uh, and then he just had like the worst run of luck imaginable. He drew like every mandatory event. Yeah. That I had, that for me, um, whereas I had cards that I could just keep, you know, burning on the space race, and and it just, you know, it just spiraled down from there. And you know, we we didn't actually finish the game. We just called it. It was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not coming back from this. So. I I love that mechanic with the card. And sometimes you've got cards in your hand that you know are going to help the other guy, and you have to play them. And it's a matter of when you play them. Uh, you guys would love Labyrinth because it's that gameplay. It's more refined, but mm. it's hugely, hugely, enormously asymmetrical like one yeah. side has completely different tools than the other side uh and you know considering the nature of the, the struggle terrorism versus the 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 u.s uh <laughs> that it's a great gameplay mechanic but it also i'm fascinated to look at that game and what we've learned about 
you know, the, the way the Arab world has emerged since Tunis uh, and seeing, wow, here's a game that just missed the cusp of history. You know, th- right. this game, as soon as it came out, became almost an out an outdated model of governance in the Arab world. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me to watch. Uh, Getting back to that idea of, of kind of assumptions, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of curious and not, not to turn the interview on its head, but I mean, what sort of assumptions does Labyrinth make? I mean, you know, would, would you call it a, a conservative game or would you call it a liberal game? Does it does it betray the war on terror as as, you know, a, a muddled, complex, you know, gray moral area or is it sort of black and white? That's a great that's a great, great question, Ben. And I'm delighted to say the fellow we have a we have a specifically a, a Labyrinth War on Terror podcast coming up where me oh. and the guest are going to be playing it and talking about it. But, yeah, I want to address that. So it that's part of the brilliance of it is that it it it's it very carefully sidesteps without ignoring the political agenda of presenting this kind of gameplay The the basic model it doesn't pass judgment on the war on terror being launched. It, it makes the assumption that it's, it's a very much a post 9-11 game that the U.S. is going to freak out in response to, to 9-11. And, and what it's about is how does the U.S. manage this sort of freak out all in policy where, you know, our agenda now is to wipe out terrorism, which is completely unrealistic. Whereas the other side's agenda is to topple all Western governance in Europe and the U.S., which is equally unrealistic. So it presents these two sides locked in this almost quixotic struggle, Uh, each of them with almost ridiculous objectives, trying to push these objectives using asymmetrical tools. Uh, Hmm. And it's a fascinating perspective um, that 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 successfully avoids passing judgment, I think, on either agenda, which is a little weird. Like, it's a little weird to be playing the jihadists where your objective is, you know, smuggling a nuke into the U.S. ultimately. Like, that, that's the best you, you can hope to do. Barring that, you just want to tear down stability in the Arab world. Uh, oh. And it doesn't pass judgment on that so much as say, you know what? Here's your agenda. It's a little crazy. Good luck. Uh, so... Yeah, I would encourage you guys to pick that up. It, it's a fascinating game. I'll definitely have to take a look at it. So, all right. So, uh, so Steel Panthers, is it something you will continue to play? Like, is it something that is on your docket for the long run, or was it something you just went back and looked at and was like, yeah, that was cool for its time? Well, I'll be honest. I, I may be coming. It may be coming to the end of its lifespan for me. Um, and and which is which is a shame because I don't really feel like there's a game that's kind of taken its place. Um, we'll see how combat mission, uh, Normandy does. Um, but even then, I mean, you know, Steel Panthers, like I said, it was expansive. It covered everything. Mm-hmm. Whereas no- combat mission Normandy, it's just going to be Normandy. Right. Um, and you know, I, I, I find that I, it, it, uh, more and more, I, I just don't have the patience for it anymore. Um, you know, I, you- I, I think it's a game that may have run its course for me. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that it's probably going to stay on my hard drive for probably another few years, but I don't know that I'll play it all that much. And you're so right about nothing taking its place. You know, I mentioned the combat mission thing, but as far as this generous sandbox with all of these different nations' orders of battles where you just draw, you know, if you want to have Finnish ski forces against, uh, you know, Russian T-34s, you could set that up. Like this idea of put in whatever you want into an arena and have them fight. Uh, I can't really think of another game that does that with the scope that that you that Steel Panthers had. Uh, that that is a shame. Uh, all right, so uh, let's see. 
Steel Panthers end of its life. Too bad. Uh, but Gary Grigsby's still going strong. You got to you got to admire the guy. Uh, yeah, he's a and and uh, he's he's I mean he's definitely been a prolific designer and um, it, it's weird that Steel Panthers is the game from him that I played first because it's so unlike all of his other games. All of his other games are just these these dense masses of detail. Um, you know, exquisitely researched but almost hidden behind layers of UI opacity that you kind of have to tear through to really get to the meat of the game. Um, I think it's kind of interesting that the game that he put out immediately before Steel Panthers was War in Russia, which is um, was kind of the proto version of the new War in the East. Mm-hmm. And War in Russia was was enormous. It was gigantic for the time. It's dwarfed by War in the East, but it was still just this incredibly huge game covering the entire Eastern Front during World War II. Um, was a bear and a half to play. Um, the manual, much like War in the East manual, was really just kind of a technical reference document. It didn't actually tell you how to play the game. <laughs> you couldn't really figure it out just by kind of clicking around. And I feel like Steel Panthers is pretty much the only game that's kind of broken that mold for him. It Whereas is kind of... Really... Go, Go ahead. ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's kind of like Gary Grigsby doesn't... He's not really comfortable being down in the mud that close to the metal. Like, he wants to sit up at a much higher level. Because, uh, you, you know, you mentioned War in Russia, but I think another one of his infamous ones is War in the Pacific, which yeah. is like War in Russia, but throw in naval warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like he doesn't... He doesn't want to get that close to the men and the material. <laughs> and I remember it. when uh, when um, Matrix Games was kind of early on in its lifespan, they were they were working on Uncommon Valor, which was kind of the sort of the prequel or the the kind of teaser for War in the Pacific. Um, and, I, and you know, I've been reading about it. I was like, hey, it's a Gary Grigsby game. He made Steel Panthers. I really love that. And I was getting really excited. I wanted to try this game out. And then as I read more about the development, I learned more about the game. I was like, this sounds awful. <laughs> like why why do i gotta figure out how much fuel my my boat has? <laughs> no i don't want to do any of that so you know that that's sort of where i kind of felt like me and gary were maybe heading in different directions um but i will admit that war in the east i actually really respect because he he has all that detail he has you know how much fuel does an individual panzer division have but you don't need to deal with any of it you, you know, know actually go you ahead just, you can just pick up a unit, drag it across the map, have it attack some other unit by right-clicking, and, you know, you can play it at that level. Um, probably if you go up against a serious competitor, they'll stomp all over you, but if you just want to beat up on the AI, you can play it that way. Um, so I kind of respect that he kind of he, he straddled both worlds with War in the East. You know, one that I'm reminded of, and I'm just now, I actually had to check while you were talking, there, there's a Gary Grigsby game called USAAF, uh, which I guess is U.S. Army Air Force. And it's about the the Allied bombing campaign of Germany at the end of World War II, mm-hmm. uh, which has this great, unlike the war in the Pacific and war in Russia and, and currently war in the East, which are huge sprawling overviews of the entire front, USAAF was very much about that one slice of the war. And it had this 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 focus you know it's not going to worry about land battles that's that's not part of what it's not going to worry about what's going on on the pacific front you know it's just the the bombing campaign and i remember it too being like like asymmetrical you know germany's just trying to hold out it's just trying to keep its industry going to fuel the war effort whereas the allies just have to knock it down you know they have to protect their bombers you have to set up your sorties uh 
I remember liking USAAF a lot for it being a nice middle ground between Gary Grigsby just exploding and, and doing everything or him doing something smaller and more tactical like Steel Panthers. You know, it's now, didn't, he do, didn't he do something kind of like a remake of that recently called Momming the Reich? My, I, Maybe he did. I don't know. I'm pretty uh, sure he did. Yeah, I'm, I think it's on Matrix Games. Um, the, it sounds like it's pretty much the same idea. You're, you're setting up momming authorities on Germany. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, check it out. Maybe it's good. I've never played it. <laughs> All right. Cool. All right. Well, uh, Ben, it was awesome hanging out with you. Uh, I, you've done a fantastic job of distracting people from your Captain, Captain Angry identity. Uh, I, I guess so. <laughs> this has been the most confusing little subplot to this this podcast, but uh, you know what? I know because people will if if I don't do this, people are gonna are gonna reproach me for not doing it. I'm just gonna come out and ask you right now: Are you Captain Angry? Uh, I am not, and have never been Captain Angry. Sorry. Uh, see, I'm not sure. We're, see, unfortunately, this is a podcast, so I can't tell if your fingers are crossed. I have no way of knowing that. Uh, <laughs> all right, Ben, it's been awesome talking to you today. I was so glad to, to meet a fellow wargaming nerd, and it was great uh, getting to to do political uh, tangents. So thanks for hanging out and doing that with me. Uh, well, thank you very much, Tom. And we will be seeing you around uh, on the forum. Okay. Take care, Ben. Right. Yeah, have a good one. sing about love and war I don't really know what I'm saying I've been in love and I've seen a lot of war seen a lot of people praying they pray to Alan they pray to the Lord and mostly they pray about love and war Since the back streets of Toronto 
I sang for justice and I hit a bad chord But I still try to sing about love and war Love and war. 